Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB and social broadcasts, this is Transmitter, bringing you original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Skadzokyo and I'll be scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. In the next hour, we'll find out what it's like to DJ for demanding bears, witness the tragedy of a teenage shooting and take a tour of a London sink estate in transition. But let's start here. So, I want you to picture me sitting in the passenger seat of my partner's car. The car is parked up on a residential street on the outskirts of Essex. It's winter, December, there's no heating in the car, so I'm wearing like five layers. My partner, she's gone into one of the houses on the street. It's a house where some friends of ours live. And this happened quite a while ago, so the details are a little hazy. I think the purpose of the trip was to drop off some money. Obviously, I was supposed to go into the house as well, but then, for some reason, I ended up staying behind. I just couldn't bring myself to get out of the vehicle. And I should say, right, you know, it had uh, it had nothing to do with whoever was living in that house. It was just. Somewhere on the journey over, I'd been hit by a wave of social anxiety. And, uh, and as a result, my brain had gone into a kind of emergency retreat mode. I remember my girlfriend saying, OK, well, uh, I'll make sure that I'm quick. And me saying, take your time. What I'm feeling right now is probably going to pass in a minute. And then... Um, and then I'll just like, I'll come in and join you. And I'll just make up an excuse for being late. Of course, like, you know, I never did join them. My girlfriend, uh, you know, she did the, the smart thing and, uh, and, and decided not to mention uh, to our friends that, uh, that I was sitting alone in the car outside their house. It was a bit like... Uh, it was a bit like being on a stakeout, I suppose. Out here, on the street, silently scrutinising everything. A really shit and pointless stakeout. I still get like this from time to time. Sometimes it lasts an hour or a day, or you know, at maybe worst, like a week or two. My best description is this. I get tied up in my own thoughts. Various stresses and anxieties collide, and they all end up getting knotted together. And my brain just doesn't know which one to deal with first. So in response, it just decides to shut everything down. It's like my computer needs to be rebooted. And then whilst that rebooting's happening, I get immobilised. I have to sort of retreat away into myself for a while. 
That was the poet and writer Ross Sutherland with a raw and touching account of dealing with social anxiety from his podcast, Imaginary Advice. This episode, number 54, called One More Song, goes on to take us back to when Ross was at school being told by a teacher that poetry could help him when he got overwhelmed. He then takes us back to the car where he's sitting and invents a sort of poetry game using the songs played on Magic FM for guidance. The radio, it gives the illusion of motion, even when you're completely stationary. It pushes thought forwards, even when the mind has ground to a standstill. Touch of a button and the world begins to move. You're pulled into the endless current of transmission. This seems like the ideal way to start Transmitter, letting the metaphorical radio dial take us on a journey. Back to Ross Sutherland. I really feel like for this short time that we've been sitting with him in the car on that cold night in Essex, and although we've never met him, he lets us into this very private moment but then things get really surreal as he takes us deeper into his imagination. I moved to the Appalachians to DJ for bears. Mostly playing the mellower end of Stax and Brian Eno each night from seven, as the sun poured itself across the valley. One night, from my decks, high up on the hillside, I watched the treetops bristle in the gloaming, the sun fading to a line of orange fur that stretched across the mountains. Garfield, I thought, and my heart grew two sizes. Everybody loves Garfield. I took this as a sign of an excellent life decision and treated the bears to music for airports. Imagining their shadows, ears swiveling, somewhere in the woods below me. Weeks passed. My set evolved. I went classical for a thunderstorm. Schubert. To keep my decks dry, I made a little roof from a broken canoe. There was no official backstage area, but I could stand behind a tree for as long as was needed. I never saw the bears, never heard their approval, but I knew they were omnivores wherever I played I trusted they would take something from it. Each night, I slept beneath the turntables, handing over duties to the insect chorus, the demanding avant-garde set that played us all through to the AM. The petrol smell from the generator worked its way into everything. One night I dreamt I was in the engine room of a sinking ship. On another, I was trying to assemble a bus in a tiny lamp-lit garage. I woke to find a squirrel revolving on the left deck. The belt track was never quite the same after that. Winter arrived, like being stabbed in a toilet. 
attacking all at once, sucking the vibe out of the valley so fast that halfway through Barbecue by Wendy Rain, the song became utterly ridiculous, cruel even. The wind felt like a police raid. I felt the scene die beneath me as one by one the trees dissolved, exhausted, their black board skeletons twitching in the death throes of an endless, godless winter. I must confess, I struggled to find the right song. Snowflakes were gathering on my vinyl repressing of Black Moses, spinning into perfect white circles of static. See, we've known each other a long time. My organs were starting to eat themselves. I guess right now you've got the last laugh. I found myself thinking about the Schofield Institute, the oak-panelled room where I made my initial presentation to the board. The one fellow who raised his pen as I turned off the projector, I'm sorry. he said, Don't bears hibernate through winter? No, I said. And it's questions like that that actually make this project so urgent. In black bears, it is known as torpor. They stop moving in winter, but the phenomenon is actually closer to depression than sleep. The bears remain hyper-aware of their surroundings, acoustically at least. The board member nodded thoughtfully. And what was the project length again? Four years, I said. Four years? Said another board member. Yes, I said, putting on my jacket in a singular movement and exiting the room. Most days, I would look down the hillside into the screaming grey void and think about the unspoken terrible consequences of being such a charismatic public speaker. One day, for reasons that now escape me, I climbed the tree above my camp. I remember gasping as a giant orange bird flew over my head and then I saw it was actually the carrier bag I kept my dirty tissues in. For warmth, I began to wear every item of clothing from my suitcase at the same time. I was now Significantly more bear-shaped, I realise, which, perhaps, made me more relatable. After all, a DJ needs to feel their crowd. One mind, one body. I tried to picture the bears, paralysed in the forest below, their emptiness like little black holes in the fog. I let their hunger pulse through me, my dead blue fingers now tracing the spines of my records. Yes, yes, I thought, I feel you now, I know what you need. I clawed free the record from my trunk. Hotspot by Foxy Brown. But as the needle fell into the groove, I realised that I had gone insane. The walls between DJ and song had collapsed inside my mind. Hang on, I thought, staring into the forest below me. Am I Foxy Brown? Is this mountain clearing the hot spot? As if my body was now no more than a needle being pulled through a groove. The mountains remolding themselves 
upon my own sad frequency. Eventually, life returned to the valley. Though, uh, I can't say for certain how long it took me to notice. I'd been playing cotton-eyed Joe at the wrong speed on a permanent loop for really as long as I could remember. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Every other record I owned had ended up strewn across the hilltop. My music trunk had been turned over completely. There was at least a hundred records scattered halfway down the hill. The records now looked like little square patches of ice slowly thawing in the sun. My DJ booth had collapsed, so now my turntables were flat against the earth with me lying on my belly in front of it. I lifted the tone arm and uh, put it down again. Somehow, my sleeping bag ended up snared in the tree above me. I think at some point I had been throwing my records at the sleeping bag, trying to dislodge it, I guess. I'd even lost my special lucky medallion that I always wore whilst DJing. <laughs> Maybe a bird got it. My phone was dead. I looked at my reflection in the glass. My left eye was all milky now, presumably dead. I had a couple of flesh wounds from that fight with the squirrel. Plus, my whole face was covered in scratches from branches. I looked like a semi-completed jigsaw of a very tired, ugly person. And then, then I saw him over the shoulder of my reflection, watching me, his nose to the ground, hiding in the shade of a sourwood tree, its blossom the colour of fake blood. He was small in size, a delinquent, most probably, a bear on his own path, I could tell, unafraid of the world. To see this bear with my own eyes, it was the same moment that I could finally admit to myself that I had stopped believing in any bears a long, long time ago. How long had he been listening? I stopped Cotton Eye Joe. Without reading too much into his face and pose, I could tell that this bear was clearly some kind of cultural pioneer, the kind of bear whose hunger crossed all senses, forever searching for something new, something powerful. Yes, yes, and right there between us, I could see just what he needed, as slow as I could, I rolled over onto my back, stretching out until my fingers grazed the record, half buried in the mud. Carefully, my fingers teased the vinyl from its sleeve. I rolled slowly back onto my front and silently placed the record on the spindle. I lifted the needle 
and held my breath. the bear. It was now sitting up on its haunches, ears raised. The bear did a little huffy nose scratch. The bear um, did not begin to dance. Uh, no, not, not even, not even a gentle sway the way that a grandma might dance in the final hour of a wedding. Not even that. The expression on its face was hard to unpack at first. A kind of pained scowl. It was the kind of look one gives an out-of-order vending machine or a departure board when all the flights turn red and slowly a familiar feeling returned to me. I remember feeling exactly the same way when I was 14 years old and accidentally said yes mum to my trampoline instructor and then had to fake a heart attack to avoid further embarrassment. Or the feeling when I gave 12 grand cash to a guy to import lots of German ping-pong tables, then realising he'd signed the receipt, Foggy Dumbledore. All the time I quit my job to write a sci-fi novel, and ended up in counselling for masturbation addiction for three years. I saw in the scowl of that bear such overwhelming disappointment. Which I suppose is another way of saying, I saw myself. The bear didn't leave, I might add. Nor did it approach and eat my head, though it could have. It stayed exactly where it was, hating me with everything it could muster. I put out my hand. and picked up another record. You've heard several extracts from Ross Sutherland's One More Song, episode 54 of his Imaginary Advice podcast. You can, of course, hear the entire episode and more of his work via rosssutherland.co.uk or just look up Imaginary Advice wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to reality now. A very harsh reality in this case. I don't want to give too much away at this point. Something that really drew me to this piece, and this podcast in general, is how little explanation is provided. There's no narration telling us what to hear and where we are. No episode notes to give any context. Just some images and clues, including Magritte's The Treachery of Images. You know the drawing of a pipe, where the phrase Ceci ne pas une pipe is inscribed? This is the first half of The Treachery of Sounds from Robert Anderson's intriguing podcast, Awful Grace or the Toll of the Void Bell. Baby, you understand me now. This needs full concentration to understand what's going on. So I would suggest just sitting and stopping what you're doing for a bit and just take it all in. Uh, 
Give me a break. Every red Sometimes you. Nah. Five shot, six shot. I've heard they're all teenagers. I don't know. Yep. Yeah, Ken, Ken hers one like dead. One dead at the scene. Still here. Yeah, still here. No, he's not DOA. He's dead at the scene. Not yeah, on arrival. He didn't yeah. arrive anywhere. DOS. <laughs> Will be DOA. Yeah. Yeah. Taken to hospital, I guess. They do that. Don't bother. WA. Dead on when we arrived. <laughs> DWA. 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 So where's Andrew Holmes? Oh, yeah. the uh, activist. Yeah. Yeah, I've here? seen him a lot. Is he here? There's he another. There's a cop named Andrew Holmes too, who's really? doing like a new department. Thing. Where are they? Yeah, where's Harris like at? He's been tweeting this. Oh yeah. Coming before you. We come against every spirit of hopelessness right now. Every spirit of despair right now. And Lord, we ask, O oh God, for the light of heaven to come in. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for your deliverance. We thank you for your healing. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your living. And we thank you for your hope. Is he lying over there? Hallelujah. 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 That every place where someone has been killed, Lord, we ask you right now that on that place, Lord, that you can raise up an army of that you will raise up an army of healers, that you will raise up an army of deliverers who know that our answer, that our hope, that our help is in you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We declare that Jesus Christ is our help, 
that Jesus Christ is our hope. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Even in this quad, the mountain of the Lord's house is rising, and sons and daughters and fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and grandparents are calling on the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. So we call on the name of Jesus. Right now in our little prayer circles, we call on the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, hallelujah, hallelujah, we declare the Lord is here over this choir, we declare the name of Jesus is over this choir, hallelujah, 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 we don't turn to any other source, we don't turn to yoga or our we don't turn to any other name other than the name of Jesus, we call on the name of Jesus Christ, he is our peace. He is our help. He is our deliverer. Hallelujah. 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 What do you want? That's what he said. Yep, I'll call you back in a bit. Uh, I'll try to get hold of Larry. He's here. All right. What's up? Another camera down there. Half of them don't fucking work. No, half the cameras in the city don't work. I don't know. You guys supposed to be saying reporting live. <laughs> Let me say that so I can sound famous or something. Look famous. Reporting live. We're standing here right here on California and Polk. Tragedy has 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 Oh wow <laughs> Look, I'm I'm sitting here broadcasting. He had the mic right up and talking about You got a three hundred? What lens is that? I've never seen that before. Huh? What kind of lens you got? One to four hundred. Now that's what's up, man. Six forty. Yeah, put that on the move. Let's uh, go around again. Alright, we gotta do some walking. It looks like there's a lot where a bunch of people are hanging out at. I don't think you saw that earlier. Middle of the afternoon. So earlier in the scanner they were saying I heard two addresses, so I wonder, because that would make six, six people is a lot for one shooting. Watch your feet, the syringes. <laughs> I always wish, I always think I should wear boots and I, I don't know. See how big the scene is? It wouldn't be if there wasn't somebody DOA. Is it purely for the press? And, well, no, press family and neighbors, they don't want to see your body, you know. The people, those two women that they took into the scene earlier must be family. Chicago Sun-Times, neighbor. How you doing? I'm good. That's sad. Middle of the day, you know? Sad. Kids ain't got nothing to do with it. See, technically we could go around and take some pictures. There's no tape. But I have a feeling if we did, uh, he has a picture. I think you could see the cops behind the building. But he, knew, he knew what I was thinking, though. Smells good.
Mother comes, she she not gonna be able to go over there. Until the finished process the scene. Oh, the process. She did. Yeah, like, oh, I knew that was the mom. I just asked. I was curious. And yo, field training officer. Field training. Oh, you want to? Yeah, we Yeah, okay. Joe. Yeah, thank you. That was an extract from The Treachery of Sounds, episode six, from season two of the podcast, Awful Grace or the Tolling of the Void Bell. I think it's worth entering the strange and disturbing world that Robert Anderson, the producer of this podcast, has created via the show website, awfulgrace.org, where he includes harrowing images and biblical quotes accompanying each episode. It's not a happy place but worth exploring. The final sound piece of this hour is an audio portrait of a London periphery in transition. 
Thamesmead, in southeast London, is an example of 1960s futurist urban design that failed to fulfil its utopian ambitions. Instead, the area became a forgotten outskirt of social housing, deprived of amenities and infrastructure. A stark example of a London sink estate. Now, with a massive Peabody redevelopment underway and a crossrail station under construction, this once forgotten periphery is about to change. Commissioned by the London Transport Museum and produced by Social Broadcast, this is Changing Places, Abbey Wood. There was a strict division between Abbeywood and Thamesmead. Now, they literally opposite each other, being divided by a road called Harrow Manor Way. In the 70s, there was a lot of prejudice from the people living in Abbeywood. The fact is that it seemed that these concrete jungles, as they saw Thamesmead to be, those that lived on the Abbeywood estate felt that they were a notch above the rest. It was a difficult, difficult group. So I don't mean each individual was difficult, but massing people together the way it happened and it was very very isolated it was forgotten it's a bit off the beaten track in some ways that's physically and it is sort of emotionally as well unfortunately or fortunately it depends Thamesmead is stuck right in between two boroughs which is the Greenwich borough and the Bexley borough it's still quite frustrating to, you know, sometimes get answers about which borough's responsible for what. I'm really interested in the, the derelict flats that go right up to the lake here at Southmere. It's kind of space-agey, in a kind of 60s feel. And I have seen Clockwork Orange, so I do think of that. When I first moved here and went to Thamesmead for the first time, it's slightly different on the other side of the tracks and it is brutal architecture it is pretty kind of in your face sort of whoa but actually that's all softened for me now and it has a lot to do with the people the place itself is quite brutal architecturally and in terms of planning and the way it's laid out and the way that pedestrians and cars are divided and the way that you navigate around this area is quite difficult but actually the sort of softer side of that around the actual people is the thing that's also quite a positive surprise I didn't mind it here because it was quiet. Culturally, it was a little bit difficult because you're like, okay, wow, there was nobody here. There's no sort of cultural life here. I mean, I, I mean that not just in terms of activity, but also there's no cafes, there's no centre, there's no place to go. It's very flat in that sense. You know, there's a train station, there's some supermarket hubs. And that's the thing that's missing from Abbeywood in terms of together, really. It's interesting historically why that is and what happened with the planning. This is called Abbeywood Village. It's always been a busy little area. We used to have two pubs, uh, shoe shops, wool shops, you name it. We had um, a greengrocer's, a wet fish stall at one point. Yeah, two shoe shops. So a lot of the shops have gone. And when I very first knew this shop, I was 13 years old and I was a Saturday girl. I've known this village a long time and that was when you could walk across the crossings. I lived on a street called Thamesbank Place, a really busy street, lots of young people, lots of nice neighbours. Out in the road as kids, like the whole street we out playing and mums would be out there having a drink and that of an evening. Like my road was really nice, you wouldn't get another road like that growing up. It's probably been a mess since I was a kid but that's all we knew, we knew Thamesmead and that's where we live. And I think moving out and moving into a nice area and coming back, you see it's a mess and I just think it is the people don't care. It's a lovely place but just, I think it's filled with the wrong kind of people. We used to call Thamesmead the fishbowl and we'd be the fish because we'd never leave. I don't live in Thamesmead and as I come here every day and what I see is, as we get nearer and nearer Thamesmead, we see a divided community. We have luxury housing, very expensive flats overlooking the river. 
all the latest BMW garages and things on one side of the road. And on the other side of the road, we have traditional, less perfect accommodation, less wealth. I feel like this is quite an overlooked part of the world. But actually what you do have is lots of people with lots of energy. I really like Thamesmead. I'm intrigued. I always come here, see something that I haven't seen before, and then on my way out back home, I just feel kind of nice, like I've had a nice time here. I moved to Abbeywood in 1979. I didn't know anything about council estates. So when I came over here, I was glad that, okay, we got a place to live. What I could see around me, I wouldn't have wanted to be friendly with them. There was a whole lot of the ism that is now identified as racism, but I just saw it that they were haters. Now I'll tell you, the Thames Me that I'm in now was just built. The earliest one was 1997, and it represented decent living conditions for council people. Coming there, when I first drove into the road to have a look at the property, the first thing I noticed as you turn into Goldfinch Road, on the right-hand side, there's a lake. And I'm not a fisher person, and I'm not a swimmer, and I'm not particularly a deep environmentalist, but I'm telling you, water makes a difference. For that reason, I'm happy to live in Thamesmead. I live in Thamesmead. I've been here like 35, something like that, years. I came from Brent and I was homeless before that so moving up to Thamesmead I was looking at it as a new start what was quite frightening for me I didn't know how new the start was going to be when I first come up here it was challenging people were saying things and I didn't quite understand it I didn't really get it because I'm thinking well I haven't done anything so they moved me over to what is now called West Thamesmead I moved into a block it was a, a mature person's block I was the baby of it, and a lot of the elders that were in there were not so forthcoming because they didn't understand as a young person moving into the block. So it took a little while for them to start to recognise me, and even some of these people now are like, oh, he's still here, such a nice man. I have lived in Thamesmead for over 21 years now, and I've had six children here. I have nine altogether, so I have a vested interest in trying to see Thamesmead be a better place. Being here now over 20 years, it's home. When I first moved to Bexley, I was quite animated because the property had pink wallpaper, and I love pink. So I was like, ah, I felt like I was in a queen's palace or something. Then over the years, my family grew and there was no space for the children to play outside. So now we live in a house, you know, they have their back garden, they can ride their bikes and jump on the trampoline. For me, as a person who is not white, um, I don't know if they define me as working class. However, for me, it was a bit of a culture shock, and I say that I'm not trying to be snobbish or anything, but um, I came back to this country in the 70s, having left in the early 70s. And before I left this country, I didn't live in a council place. When I came back as an independent woman with husband and child, and children, rather, um, then I had to stand on my own two feet, and then I had to go to the council for accommodation. And after being homeless in council accommodation, way over in the side I come from, which was Harrow initially, that's where I grew up, I ended up in this place called Abbey Wood. I'm a pastor in Thamesmead. We have a very mixed congregation. I would say 98% Africans, but very diverse Africans. When we came here 18 years ago, we were probably one of five black families in Thamesmead. As a matter of fact, when I told one of my friends that we were moving to Thameson, the guy shouted and said, what are you doing? Are you going to kill yourself and your family? Because Thameson was noted for racial, you know, and um, skinhead, whatever, and everything. In 18 years, we've never experienced anything like that. Why do we have a lot of West African families? I think the affordability, and if you remember, I think when Peckham, Elephant, Castle, and were regenerated, a lot of people who had council homes then 
West African families were given option to be rehoused or paid up to leave their properties. Now, for most of them, the money they receive, the only place they could really buy property was since that was close to London. So, you get your property, you tell your friend, your friend tell another, your friend tell another, and before you know it, everybody's in Thamesmead. I lived in this house in North Thamesmead since 2010. Uh, the River Thames is just two minutes walk from here. We lived in a council house, but my mum loved her house, so it was tidy. My parents moved out of Thamesmead three or four years ago. I moved out of Thamesmead seven years ago. But not at first, I didn't want to. I didn't want to when I moved out. I moved to a house specifically, I was like, I'm not leaving Thamesmead, I'm staying here. My friends were here, my local pub was around the corner. So I stopped going to the pub and started saving my money, so spending it. I done well, saved me, my partner saved really hard. She bought a little house down in Rollsby Way in Thamesmead. And then we rented that out for a little while and then bought another house in Welling. I think I was 20, 21 when I bought it. I see people that are um, a couple of years younger than me, so they might be in their mid-twenties saving for a mortgage or got a good job and it's just nice. So I, I do think I'm a role model to the majority of them. I hope I am. It's been calm for me, but it's rough for other people. Tensman's obviously where I grew up. That is where all my family are from. So see, I'm happy to live where I live in. Tensman ain't all that bad, it's just, it's just the life and that's my area. Yeah. I moved from Walthamstow and I moved to Abbeywood about three years ago. And the reasons that we moved was we lived in Wolfenstone and rented accommodation and my wife was pregnant and we had our first son and we needed somewhere to live that we could build a life with a garden and I have a practice and I needed some space to build a studio and we couldn't do that in Wolfenstone. You know, when we got here, we like the area, there's lots of woods and there's lots of green space. It's really close to Kent. You can drive out really quickly. It just made a lot of sense for us. And, you know, there's lots of really great things about it being here, but it was also a bit of a culture shock as well because it's very different in terms of what there is to do. When I grew up, there would be sort of fates going on, all different types of things that people would just do. But nowadays, it's, it's like you walk out on the street, there's nobody playing outside, that's it. Most people are here from they say that it, it, they don't feel safe from letting their children out. My children, unfortunately, never socialised with the, the locals for some reason. There is no one around to socialise. They had sea cadets. They had the after-school clubs, as that was it. There's not much to do in terms of activities for adults and also for children. So I think my children are looking forward to moving. It feels like there's a lot of change happening and going on, especially with everyone building and digging up roads and tearing down structures. It's all changing. But in some ways, that's unsettling for young people because they're used to it being like that. That's the way it always has been for all of their lives, and now it's not. So whatever's going to happen next is going to be very interesting. I've actually been um, instrumental in some of the changes, which I'm quite proud of. And it's good to see that some of the things that we suggested over 10 years, 15 years ago, are actually you know, manifesting now. So people are, are working together and pulling together. They're trying to make it a nice place to live. They're trying to make it a nice place to work. It's not as dead as it was. It used to be very, very bleak, but there are things happening here now. But what I absolutely love about Abbeywood now is that I know everybody on my road. I literally talk to everyone as we're going along. Sometimes I'll pop into their homes. Um, there's a really great church community as well, um, different pastors, different people. So I love that. I love the fact that, that we've got a really great um, neighborhood watch and so forth. So it still has that community base. But I've always seen this area as reserved for working class people. I, I welcome of the West African because 
safety in numbers is what I say since they have come in and are now the majority it appears we don't have the racial attacks anymore and so I give thanks for them I think there's been a lot of changes in in Tempsin. when I moved into Tempsin 18 years ago there was a lot of green it was beautiful that was the attraction but I think the redevelopment is kind of taking it on the off but I think we're going to have a lot of concrete at the end of the day Unfortunately, property prices may rise. And I can't help but think, as Thamesmead itself regenerates, there could be a greater shift in, in the gap between the wealthy and the not-so-wealthy than there is at the moment. They're taking the post office away, so that's going. That's going to be a, another block of flats. They've already took the arrow away. That's going to be another block of flats. So they're just filling the place up with blocks of flats. There's all these properties that nobody is living in, but people are still looking for homes, and it's taking a while now that you know, this has been sorted out. You see, what has happened is I, I support the fact that people need to have homes, but for a long time, people who need homes don't have homes. The ordinary people running for the train like I used in the morning, running come home, cannot afford anymore to live around here. I understand where a lot of that anxiety comes from. And you have seen a shift in the, the people that get off the train. So we're kind of like being put on a back burner because everyone comes out the station and goes straight onto the flyover. A lot of the shops down here are missing out on trade. It'd be great if there was a centre here. It'd be great to be able to go out and go have a pizza someplace and sit down. <laughs> Why would you not want that? Why would you not want to have a cinema? I don't understand why people would see that as a bad thing. I think where some of the trepidation perhaps is around that change where people feel that it's not for them or that change isn't what they would want. Um, and I understand that completely. You know, I'm on a very individual, selfish level, I'm really looking forward to being able to get places easier and, you know, and, and people being able to come to visit. I don't think that's a bad thing. <laughs> Kimsmead has changed even in West Thamesmead, because it was enclosed for a long time before they put bus routes down there. So you, you only had the people that was there. When they opened the road, all of a sudden, it's like all these different people are coming through. They started building up further near the mound and we've got shops and everything now. I mean, all of that was just wasteland. A lot of it was just like overgrown wasteland. We've got so much in Thamesmead now that, that makes it feel like if you're not careful on the downside, you can end up just living there and not even have to go anywhere. They get a couple of good supermarkets down there in a cinema, that's it, you're in. Just heard Changing Places, Abbey Wood, produced by Social Broadcast for the London Transport Museum, as part of an audio installation opening in the spring. I'm Lucia Skadzokio and you've been listening to Transmitter, a social broadcast production for Resonance FM. All the details of what you've heard will be available on the Transmitter tab of Social Broadcast co.uk where you can also subscribe to our newsletter i'll be back with more audio radio and podcast discoveries in april and if you have any recommendations please do drop me a line via the website until then happy listening